0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Instead of promoting a sponsor this week, I'm going to ask you to do something in the spirit of giving this holiday season. I want to ask you if you'll consider making a donation to your local animal shelter or animal rescue organization this week. This is a cause near and dear to my heart. I have two rescue dogs. Zoe, a boxer mix, and Riley, a Boston Terrier, and they are the sweetest pups you'll ever meet. Both were homeless until they came to live with us and are now wonderful members of our family. Rescue organizations and shelters run on donations, so if you'd like to give to help out their efforts and in some cases take a tax write-off for your gift, please Google animal rescue organizations in your area and give generously. Here are some in Northern California that you can give to. The Santa Clara County Animal Shelter, the San Jose Animal Care Center, that's where I adopted Riley, or Wonder Dog Rescue. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is the last episode of 2016. I hope you are all enjoying a peaceful holiday season, but as you've learned in the first two installments of this series, Holiday Homicides, murder doesn't take a holiday, and apparently neither do I. I'm squeaking in one last episode this year. It'll kind of be like that last forgotten gift you find under the tree or in a closet a few days after Christmas, something I seem to do every year. In this episode, I'll recount a case that shocked Madison, Wisconsin in 1977, when a body was discovered on Christmas Day, partially buried in a snowbank. It became big news in Madison and beyond, The details were made for television. The case had murder, sex, and a beautiful accused murderess. The public ate it up, and it was the first televised murder trial ever in Wisconsin. You've already heard the disclaimer, but I will just give you an additional caveat. This episode is not intended for children. Kinky sex is involved. You've been warned. This is Chapter 3 of Holiday Homicides, Murder in Madison. Christmas Day in 1977 in Madison, Wisconsin was cold. Not just cold, but frickin' freezing. The temperature with the wind chill factored in was recorded at 41 below zero that day, and eight inches of snow had recently fallen. Of course, many people were off for the holiday, including clerks and officers in the Madison Police Department, which was being run with a skeleton crew. At about 10 a.m. on Christmas Day, a man walked into the Madison Police Headquarters and up to the death sergeant on duty. The sergeant noticed the man looked either drunk or ill, and none too steady on his feet. He approached and blurted out, Last night I helped bury a body in a snowbank. I don't know who he was, but I can take you to where the body is. The death sergeant made a call to Lieutenant Chuck Lolling, who was home helping his wife prepare their Christmas meal. Before long, he was headed out in the cold to search for a body. All thoughts of that Christmas turkey now put on hold. The man who confessed to burying the body was named Jerry Davies. Davies was a 31-year-old shipping clerk who worked at the University of Wisconsin. Now he led the way for Lieutenant Lulling, three uniformed officers, the county coroner, and the assistant DA up Black Hawk Road to the Black Hawk Ski Jumps parking lot. He pointed to a snowbank near a grove of trees nearby. As the officers approached with shovels preparing to dig, they saw an arm sticking out of the snow. They didn't have to dig long before more of the body was exposed. It seemed barely covered and looked like it had been done in haste. The coroner had the men stop digging periodically to snap pictures of the body for his records. The body was of a Caucasian man, and injuries were apparent on his head. He was obviously beaten or injured in some way, with multiple contusions visible on the skull. He had been buried nude. When they uncovered more, they were taken aback by the condition of the body around the genital region. The area had been battered black and blue, and the genitals were extremely swollen. While the men continued to dig out the corpse for removal to the morgue, Davies, who'd been looking on, vomited in the snow. Davies was then transported back to police headquarters for questioning. He readily confessed that he and his fiancée, Barbara Hoffman, had buried the body. Davies seemed distraught, alternately crying, shaking, and even hyperventilating at times during the interrogation. They were able to get the following details from him. On the morning of December 23rd, Davies had picked up Barbara from her apartment on State Street. Barbara did not have a car, and he often drove her to her job at EDS Federal, where she worked as a clerical assistant. On the drive, they didn't speak of anything much. Barbara was going to visit her family for Christmas, and he asked if he'd see her before she left the next night. She said probably not. She'd be too busy, and he should call her a couple of days after Christmas. Davies was disappointed, but agreed, and said goodbye to her as he dropped her off. So he was surprised when that night Barbara called him and asked him if he'd like to come by. He quickly agreed, arriving at her apartment about an hour later. That night, they spent time together in Barbara's apartment, drinking vodka and watching TV. They fell asleep together on the couch. At about 2.30 a.m., Barbara woke him and told him that something terrible had happened. She told him when she got home the previous day, she'd found a dead body in the bathroom of her apartment, She said she didn't know what to do. You have to help me get rid of it, she said. Davies said she seemed terrified as she implored him for help. Davies questioned her asking why they just couldn't call the police. She said she thought that she was being framed by some people and that the police would never believe she wasn't involved. She again begged him to help her get rid of the body. Barbara lived in an upstairs apartment. Davies questioned how they could do so without being seen. She said everyone was either away or closed for Christmas. It was now the early morning of December 24th. She instructed him to pull his car around the back of the apartment building near a dumpster. He did so. It was about 4 a.m. Barbara came downstairs and brushed snow from the mound near the dumpster. Davy saw a form shrouded in bedsheets, hidden in the snow. He tried to help her get the corpse in the trunk, but because rigor mortis had set in, and also because the body was frozen solid from the cold and the snow— They could not fit it. Instead, they put the body in the back seat, but it didn't fit for the door to shut, so they lowered the front seat and placed it diagonally across the car interior. Barbara now was forced to ride in the back seat with the body. She directed him up a hill to the Black Hawk ski area where she had him pull over and stop. They quickly dropped the body in the snow and buried it. Once back at the apartment, she instructed Davies to wipe down the interior of the car and vacuum it out. Then she told him, Go home and rest, Jerry, and remember, I'm your fiancé. On the evening of the 24th, Davies drove to his mother's house for Christmas Eve dinner. He stayed over that night, but was unable to sleep. In the morning, he told his mother he needed to head back to Madison. He drove to the police station that morning and told them about the body in the snow. Now the police were interested in discovering more about Barbara Hoffman and also determining the identity of the man whose body now sat in the coroner's office awaiting an autopsy. Barbara Hoffman was not only a clerical worker, but also a former University of Wisconsin student, majoring in biochemistry, and more interestingly, a sex worker who had previously been employed at the oddly named Jans Health Spa, a known massage parlor in Madison that also ran a brisk sex trade. Jerry Davies had met Barbara at Jans. He had been a former client, Davies was a socially awkward young man who had few friends and never dated. He was one of four children, and his father had left when he was just a young boy, and the family hadn't seen or heard from him in over 15 years. Davies stayed in close contact with his mother, even after moving away to work in Madison. He would travel every weekend to Spring Green to visit her and have dinner. Davies, of course, would have heard that at Jan's, a person could pay for human contact with any number of girls. It was one of the most notorious massage parlors, as they were known, in Madison, and there were several. Besides getting a massage, a person could also pay for sex, pay to watch women have sex, or request special services, such as being tied up, whipped, or other forms of S&M. Clients could also score drugs and sometimes even purchase a firearm. When Davis first visited Jans in 1976, he was a 28-year-old virgin. On his third visit to the establishment he met Barbara Hoffman. She was different, he said. She wasn't overly painted up, and she didn't act oversexed. She seemed very self-assured, but gentle and fresh-faced. He was instantly attracted to her in a way he hadn't experienced before. He began visiting Jans at least once a month, always asking for Barbara. He sometimes had to wait. Barbara was in high demand. Later, detectives would learn that Barbara was requested by men who, unlike Davies, requested more specialized services. S&M, and pretty much anything a client wanted. Barbara, they discovered, had been dubbed the queen of the massage parlors by the other girls and their male clients as well. But Davies experienced his time with Barbara differently. She was never aggressive, he explained. Sometimes they just talked. Davies was not so much interested in sex as he was in the pseudo-relationship he shared with Barbara. Although he paid her the going rate, $50 for 35 minutes of her time, he felt a connection to her. It was Barbara, he said, that suggested they begin seeing each other outside of Jan's. He was surprised and thrilled. He found himself in love with Barbara, the first woman he'd ever dated. He told detectives that he and Barbara had become engaged and were supposed to marry that previous spring, but the wedding had been delayed. He also said she'd quit working at Jan's in May of 1976, and he believed her when she said she no longer was seeing any other men, even though they rarely had sex now. He said she was traumatized by her time at Jans and was not that interested in sex, and he was okay with that. Barbara had grown up in Illinois. Her school records showed that she had been at the top of her high school class, had an IQ score of 145, and placed in the 98th percentile ever college entrance exams. She was a national merit finalist and was fluent in both German and French. She graduated high school in 1970, starting her college career at Butler University in Indianapolis on a full tuition scholarship. However, she decided to transfer to the University of Illinois at Chicago. We didn't stay there long before transferring to the University of Wisconsin. Biochemistry was her major, and she earned A's in her classes in organic chemistry, biochemistry, and microbiology. She had an overall GPA of 3.9. With just 12 credits left to earn her bachelor's of Science degree in biochemistry Barbara dropped out of school. She requested a leave of absence and re-enrolled in 1975, but only lasted a few weeks before dropping out again. Of course, during this time, it was learned, she had begun working at Jans. Detectives found Barbara to be a mystery. She had no close friends. The women at Jans knew that she was popular with the clients and had a taste for quaaludes, but that was about all. Almost all of the girls used some form of substance or another, marijuana, quaaludes, booze, to get them through their days and nights performing sex acts on and with strange men. Barbara was no exception and no one judged it much. She shared almost no personal information though and never socialized with the other girls after hours. No one seemed to know her personal life at all. Even as detectives had searched her apartment after Davy's confession, they could find little to determine who Barbara was as an individual. There were no family photos, no mementos, nothing personal in her apartment that might give them a clue about her life. The only pictures they had found were in a box that contained pornographic pictures of men and women, probably taken at Jan's, and held on to by Barbara for who knows what reason. Barbara had boasted that she'd made $23,000 in a year, working three days a week at Jan's. The other girls didn't believe that Barbara had left her lucrative career at Jan's to work as a paltry clerical assistant and date a nobody. No, most believe that Barbara used the clerk job as a front and had set up shop for herself out of her apartment. Neighbors did notice different pairs of men's shoes outside of her apartment frequently. Barbara didn't allow shoes to be worn in her place. Barbara seemed to be an ice queen, ironic since she traded in flesh. But there was possibly only one person Barbara did have feelings for. It seemed that she may have had an infatuation with a man named William Garrett, and what she shared one night possibly to impress him, would turn out to be a big mistake. William Garrett was a six 6'2", 240-pound two, wall of muscle. He was 30 years old, very self-assured, and intimidated by no one, not even the detectives that came to question him about his relationship with Barbara Hoffman. He was also well-to-do financially. William Garrett owned and co-owned four massage parlors in Madison, including Jan's Health Spa. He was suspected in drug trafficking, fencing stolen merchandise and credit cards, and dealing unregistered weapons and other scams. He had begun his hired muscle for a man named Sam Saro, who was a bookie and loan shark. Saro realized there was money to be made in the massage parlor game and got in. He needed a person to hire the women and to act as a bodyguard and bouncer. He hired Garrett. Garrett was able to buy in and become a part owner and began amassing his fortune. Garrett used the girls at the massage parlor for sex whenever he wished sometimes with Barbara. Barbara seemed to relish his attention. Whenever he called for her, she came running. One night, Barbara attended a party. She was drinking and taking quaaludes. When Barbara was high, Garrett said she liked to talk. She began to boast about a plan she had, saying that in a couple of months, it would make her a wealthy woman. She said that while she was working at Jan's, she'd met an inexperienced and naive man who'd fallen for her. She began dating him and told him she would leave the massage parlor if he promised to marry her. In order to ensure their future together, she'd convinced him that they should invest in a life insurance policy. The policy was worth close to a million dollars, and she was the sole beneficiary. She explained the rest of the plan. Because of her knowledge of biochemistry, she knew how to culture botulinum toxins. She was going to use the toxins to poison the man while they were on their honeymoon trip to Mexico. It would seem as if he had gotten a fatal case of food poisoning in a foreign country. She would then have the body quickly cremated and then collect the life insurance money. Easy peasy. She then said that the marriage date was already set and the passport secured. It was all going according to plan. Garrett, hearing the story secondhand from his roommate, went to talk to her, telling her that she was nuts if she thought she could pull off this scam. First of all, she was talking about murder. Second, insurance companies weren't idiots and were not about to pay off almost a million dollars without a thorough investigation. She would surely get caught if she went ahead with this ridiculous plan. What do you care anyway, Barbara retorted, and then she denied having said anything of the sort. But Garrett had visited Barbara in her apartment to have this conversation and had seen a note taped to her refrigerator door, a note that looked like a checklist with the items marriage license and passport checked off. He now relayed this information to the detectives. So what does this have to do with the body in the snowbank? Obviously, Barbara was talking about Jerry Davies as her intended victim. It was Jerry who she'd met at Jan's, Jerry who'd fallen in love with her and planned to marry her. What Davies didn't know was that the man in the snow was Harry Burgey, and he had been Barbara's first mark. Barbara, it seems, had ambitions, and it wasn't to graduate from college and become a biochemist or to continue working in the sex trade. No, Barbara was too smart for that, and she must have decided she could figure out a way to make a large amount of money and live on Easy Street. The idea must have come to Barbara when she realized the power she had over her male clients at Jan's. They requested her specifically, came more frequently, and reveled in her attention, especially the inexperienced and the lonely. In short, the sad sacks. Jerry Davies was one. Harry Burgey was another. Harry Burgey was a 52-year-old forklift driver at the Uniroyal plant. He had grown up as a farmer's son. When he finished high school, he'd chosen to stay on the farm. He continued to live with his parents. But times were hard for the family, who'd never been able to make much beyond what they needed to live on, and they lost the farm in 1966. Harry was, at that time, 41 years old, and he moved with his parents into town. His father died of kidney failure a year later, and four years after that, his mother also died. Harry Burgey lived alone for the first time ever at the age of 46. He had an older sister, who didn't find it odd that Harry never had a girlfriend or even dated. Farm work had taken up most of his younger years, and when he wasn't working, he was either fishing or hunting. Harry's life was a routine that he never complained about. He worked the second shift at the Uniroyal plant, bowled one night a week, went to a movie in Madison once in a while, and built and operated a model railroad yard in his cellar. Harry had a passion for model trains. Once a week, his sister visited him and cleaned his house and did his ironing. It was also discovered that Harry, like any other normal red-blooded American man, desired a physical relationship and maybe even love. In the summer of 1977, he hinted to a neighbor couple whose children Harry allowed to help operate his model trains that he might have a girlfriend. She was a student at the University of Wisconsin, younger than him, but that was all he would share. Of course, Harry was talking about Barbara. Harry had also been a client of Barbara's, first meeting her at Jans. Detectives found a box of receipts in Harry's possession that covered the period from December 1974 to July 1977 for a total of $1,630 spent at Jans, no doubt for Barbara's services. Barbara had begun seeing Burgie outside of Jan's. She told him she wanted to quit the life and live normally. Burgie was thrilled that she'd want to be with him. Barbara began going by the name Linda Miller, telling Burgie she was trying to shed her past. In early October 1977, Burgie went to visit his lawyer out of the blue, telling him he wanted to amend his will. The lawyer had advised Burgie to do so five years earlier when his mother had died, as she had been his sole beneficiary. Now it seems he was finally getting around to it, and he wanted to leave his life insurance policy and his house to a woman named Linda Miller. She was his fiancée, he said. The house and the insurance policy had a combined value of about $35,000. Barbara was juggling these two men, Jerry Davies and Harry Burgey, in a complex game. In early 1977, she got Jerry to purchase a life insurance policy worth $750,000. How a shipping clerk could purchase an almost million dollar policy with an annual premium of over $13,000, well over the $9,000 Jerry earned per year, is the stuff of genius or lunatics. Barbara had Jerry put on the life insurance application that besides his job at the university, he also had a silent ownership in four Madison massage parlors. He stated that his monthly profit was $1,500 and was expected to increase over the next few years. He wanted a large policy, Barbara explained, in order to defer his tax burden and build immediate equity in his estate. It took some convincing and shopping around for someone who would underwrite the policy, but in February 1977, the $750,000 policy was accepted by Transport Life. The first half of the premium, $6,600, was handed over to the agent with the next installment due in July. The next payment was also paid on time. Everything was going according to plan, that is, until Barbara blurted out her plan at a party. After Garrett told her what he heard, she knew she'd have to scrap the plan. Too many people might remember what they heard when the news of Davy's death and the insurance payout came to light. But she was determined to figure out a way to get paid. In the meantime, the next premium of over $6,000 was coming due again, and it seems she must have been out of money to make the third payment on time. That's where Burgie came in. Investigators believe that Barbara planned to use the payout from Bergie's policy to pay the premium on Davy's much larger policy. This, they said, was her motive for the murder of (music) Bergie. Bergie initially was believed to have been killed by blunt force trauma to the head. He had also been beaten in the genitals and had superficial scratches on his neck and back possibly from being dragged down the stairs into the car. He'd also vomited and possibly had suffocated as a result. The cause of death was determined to be multiple blunt force blows to the head, resulting in death. Meanwhile, the investigators had searched Barbara's apartment for evidence of the crime. They needed corroboration for Davy's claims. They were unable to find anything. No blood, no hair, no fingerprints for Harry Burgey. If he'd ever been there, they couldn't find evidence of it. They even searched in the snow by the dumpster where Davies said the body had been hidden and came up empty. They needed something to charge Barbara. So they had Davies wear a wire and had him meet Barbara in a bar. They told him under no circumstances should he go back to her apartment. After discovering that there was a large life insurance policy on Davies with Barbara as the beneficiary, they feared for his safety as well. Barbara was too smart for this ruse. She first told him that he must be wired to the hilt. He quickly confessed that he was. She then dropped some coins in the jukebox to drown out their conversation. The detectives again went away empty-handed. Davies was then placed under 24-hour surveillance to make sure he didn't become Barbara's next victim. He was unaware that he was being watched. About a month after the murder, investigators went back to Barbara's apartment to dig through the snowbank once more. This time they were successful. A small bit of frozen blood and hair was found the blood type matched Harry Burgey. Davies was ordered to give testimony at a preliminary hearing where he told about helping Barbara dispose of Burgee's body. She hadn't killed him, he still insisted. He believed her when she told him she'd found the dead body in her house. Investigators were still working to build their case against Barbara, and an arraignment was scheduled for April 6th. They believed with Jerry's testimony about having moved the body, a motive Burgee's life insurance policy Barbara would benefit from after Burgee's death, and Burgi's blood found behind her apartment, their case looked good. On March 2nd, without the next payment of $6,000 on Davies' insurance policy available to her, Barbara forfeited the policy. But not before she had written out a check and sent it to her insurance company, a check she knew would bounce. At the time she wrote the check for $6,618.30, she had a grand total of $14.58 in her bank account. She placed the stop payment on the check, Having paid over $13,000 towards the policy, Barbara was issued a refund of only $2,000. A couple of days later, Jerry Davies made changes to another, smaller insurance policy he was in possession of. The policy, worth $20,000, had always named his mother as beneficiary. Now he changed the beneficiary to Barbara. In case of accidental death, the policy would pay out $35,000. On Monday, March 27th, the day after Easter weekend, letters were received by the district attorney, Hoffman's defense attorney, a local paper, and the police captain in Madison. The letters were dated Saturday, March 25th and signed by Jerry Davies. They read, I want to write these letters because I want to set the record straight. I was scared. I was jealous. Barb is innocent, and I wrecked her life. All those stories I told about Barb are false. She never had anything to do with a body at all. She never did. I went crazy. I was so scared. The police scared me. I was crazy and I didn't know what I was saying. Then I had to keep telling the same story or they would charge me with the crime. Now they did it to Barb instead and I don't know what to do anymore except to tell the truth. I'm not crazy anymore and I'm not scared. I want to tell the truth. I'm not afraid to go to jail. Barb never had anything to do with a body at all. I swear it, and they can do whatever they want to me. The DA and the investigators believed Barbara must have coerced her fiancé to recant. They knew they needed to talk to Davies, but they didn't want to scare him off. He was so nervous and skittish, and they knew they needed to handle him carefully. They decided to wait and contact him in a day or two. On the same day the letters were received... Davy's upstairs neighbor was being driven crazy by the sound of a bathroom fan that had been running all day in the apartment below. He finally reported the noise to the building's maintenance man. The maintenance man, along with the resident manager, entered Jerry's apartment after getting no answer to their knocks. They planned to turn off the switch and leave, but when they entered the bathroom, they saw Jerry's nude, dead body lying in the bathtub, partially submerged in six inches of water. His head lay back against the tiled wall it was not submerged. It was obvious he had been dead for some time. The water was cold and his skin was white and wrinkled where it was submerged in the water and discolored purple above. Rigor mortis had set in. The bathroom was clean and tidy. Once detectives arrived, they observed a neat and organized apartment. A rent check for April sat on top of a bedroom dresser. Davies had no bruises or other marks on his body. There was no sign of a struggle. Dry towels and slippers have been placed next to the tub. The only thing that seemed out of place was an uncapped plastic prescription bottle found in the bathroom. The prescription was dated March 13th and read 2 milligrams Valium, 50 tablets, take as needed, and was made out to Gerald T. Davies. The bottle was empty. An autopsy on Davies' body was performed on March 28th. No abrasions were found on his body. His lungs, however, were damaged severely. Their weight was almost double the average, resulting from severe pulmonary congestion, edema, and hemorrhage, symptoms consistent with asphyxia due to drowning. It didn't seem plausible, but with no other observed cause of death, the coroner concluded that Davies' death was due to accidental drowning. The estimated time of death was between 5 and 7 PM on Saturday, march twenty fifth. The Valium prescription, he decided, could not be the culprit. Davies possibly suicidal. That was believable, but neither the pathologist or the coroner knew of a death resulting from an overdose of Valium. Davies' organs were removed, cataloged, and stored before his body was sent to the funeral home. A toxicologist at the state crime lab, Kenneth Kempfert, had been puzzling over the Davies case for days. He did tests on the organs for any other types of drugs or substances that could have caused his death and found nothing. The stomach had contained food, it seemed as if Davies had eaten a meal of chili that contained carrots soon before his death. An odd thing, carrots and chili, Kemford thought, but certainly not fatal. Every type of poison was also ruled out. Finally, on April 7th, Kemford's nose detected something that his sophisticated lab tests could not, a faint smell like burnt almonds. Cyanide is characterized by the smell of burnt almonds. But how could that be, he thought. How did the coroner not detect that smell? when surely it was stronger over a week ago. Paging through medical literature, Kemford found his answer. Approximately one quarter of the population, due to a minor hereditary defect, is not able to perceive the smell of burnt almonds. The coroner had not been able to smell it due to this genetic anomaly. Kemford quickly tested Davies for traces of cyanide. He found that his blood contained over twice the amount of cyanide that would constitute a lethal dose. Davies had not drowned after all. He had died of cyanide poisoning. He informed the detective working on the case, who in turn requested Burgie's blood also be tested for cyanide. It came back positive, but Burgie's blood contained over 37 times the lethal dose of cyanide. Now detectives worked to find out how and when Barbara could have gotten cyanide. First, they considered that she might have stolen it from the university, since she'd had access to the biochemical lab. But then they found records to show that chemical supplies had been mailed at various times to both Davies' and Hoffman's addresses. The supplies they had purchased could be used to grow the organism that would cause botulism, as well as a variety of other bacteria. And they had also purchased potassium cyanide. The cyanide was purchased as early as May 1977. Hoffman was now arrested and arraigned. He made bail and awaited her trial while free. After many motions and delays, Barbara Hoffman's trial for the murders of Harry Burgey and Jerry Davies began in June of 1980. It was the first trial in Wisconsin to be televised in its entirety. The state Supreme Court had recently ruled that cameras could be allowed in the courtroom. There was a media frenzy and the public was riveted to the trial coverage. This case had it all. A beautiful, mysterious woman accused of murder, who was also said to be a sex worker who provided kinky sex acts for money, and then moved on to murder for financial gain. The trial promised to be fascinating, bringing in character witnesses who were rumored to be involved in the massage parlor-slash-sex trade industry and drug dealing. Madison, Wisconsin's seedy underbelly was being exposed, and some people were intrigued, while others were repulsed. What was the world coming to, they lamented. And yet, televised ratings were through the roof during the trial, and the courtroom was packed every day with the lucky spectators who had shown up early enough to secure a seat. The victims were sympathetic. Two sad sack loners who believed they had finally, for the first time in their lives, found love with a beautiful and intelligent woman who made them feel like they were the most desirable men on earth. Both died near holidays, Virgie just before Christmas, and Davies right after Easter. The unsuspecting dupes were just pawns in Barbara's selfish game. The state laid out its case. Barbara Hoffman had been setting up Jerry Davies to marry her, make her beneficiary of a large life insurance policy, and then cause his death in Mexico and make it look like food poisoning. But she blabbed her plan, Garrett found out, and she knew she couldn't go through with it. But she wasn't willing to give up over a million bucks, so she amended her plan. She would use cyanide to poison him. But meanwhile, the plan was delayed, and the premiums were due on the policy. Premiums she didn't have enough money to cover. So... Already made beneficiary to Burgie's property and insurance, she decided to get the funds she needed by getting rid of Burgie first. Neither man knew about the other one. So first, she killed Burgie by poisoning him. But then she needed Davy's help to dispose of Burgie's body. She believed she had enough control over Davies that he wouldn't talk. But she was wrong. His conscience couldn't take the knowledge of what he had helped Barbara do, and he went to the police. Now she had two problems. She needed the money... She had less than $15 in her bank account, and she needed to get rid of Davies, who was slated to testify against her. What would be convincing? Davies was obviously distraught and still under Barbara's influence. He couldn't believe she was guilty of murder, and he still loved her. She first coerced him into recanting his statement by letter, then told him she'd bring him some dinner. Chili, since the spicy food would cover up the taste of the cyanide she had laced it with. She then told him to take a nice relaxing bath and everything would be fine and dandy. Afterwards, she cleaned up the apartment, left him in the tub with the empty vial of Vicodin, hoping it would be believed that he'd died of suicide. This was a simple case of the defendant causing the death of two men by poison in an attempt to collect their insurance money, the prosecution claimed. The defense countered this theory of events by saying that Davies had found out about Barbara's relationship with Burgie and in a jealous rage, beat and killed him. Then, still angry, he had set up Barbara to take the fall. Later feeling guilty for ruining her life, he set the record straight in his letters and then took his own life in remorse. The trial spectators saw Barbara every day sitting primly, poker-faced in large tortoiseshell glasses. They expected to see the queen of the massage parlors, and instead they got the ice queen. She neither smiled nor frowned and reacted to nothing. Garrett made a colorful character, He was the massage parlor owner-operator who testified about Barbara spilling the beans about her plans to marry, kill, and collect a large life insurance settlement from one of her former clients. He also testified to seeing the checklist in Barbara's apartment that listed marriage license and passports. The purchases of the chemicals, including cyanide, was also brought into evidence. The detective testified to his dealings with Jerry Davies and how he had shown him where he and Barbara had hid Burgie's body. The life insurance documents listing Barbara as beneficiary to both men's policies were shared. There's one minor detail in the evidence that I think shows the lengths the investigators went in their pursuit of answers into Jerry Davies' death. As you'll recall, the autopsy showed that Davies had consumed a meal of chili that contained carrots as one of the ingredients. They believed that the cyanide had been hidden in the meal and fed to Davies by Barbara. In order to prove this to the jury... Detectives called around to every place that someone could purchase chili—stores, takeout restaurants, and the like—to see if they sold chili that had carrots as an ingredient. No one did. Thus, they concluded it must have been a homemade dish, and who else would have brought it to Davies? Barbara was the only one who visited Davies, so it must have been her. The defense, of course, countered all the evidence with questions meant to cause doubt in the jury's mind. They also presented alibi witnesses for the weekend of Christmas 1977 and Easter 1978. Barbara Hoffman's parents, Robert and Vi Hoffman. They first asked Barbara's mother and father to describe their daughter. Both spoke of her academic accomplishments, her intelligence, good marks in school, her scholarships and entrance into college. They talked to Barbara infrequently once she left for college, but they saw her every Christmas, they said. Her mother testified that Barbara had admitted to her in the summer of 1976 that she was working in a massage parlor. Vi was stunned. Barbara explained that she had answered an ad for a receptionist position at the health spa, and it was only after she was hired that she found out what really went on there. But she saw the money the girls were making, and it swayed her. Vi asked her to come home. She declined. A couple of days later, she called to say she had quit, and was thinking of changing her name to escape her past. But she wanted to stay in Madison. Barbara's mother and father accepted her decision, Vi Hoffman said. She also said that Barbara had mentioned both Harry Burgi and Jerry Davies as men she dated, but said she wasn't serious about them. She just considered them to be friends. Her parents also testified that they were visiting Barbara over the Christmas weekend of 1977. Her father said he stayed at Barbara's apartment from December 22nd, "'until the morning of December 24th, "'when he drove with Barbara back to their home. "'She stayed with them through Christmas Day. "'That evening, the police had arrived "'to take her to the station "'to question her about the death of Harry Burgey. "'They also testified that on Easter weekend, "'both he and his wife drove to Barbara's apartment, "'arriving on Saturday. "'They went out with her for dinner, "'and then they returned to the apartment around 10 p.m. "'and slept on the sofa bed, "'as they usually did when they visited. "'They got up in the morning,' Went to church and spent time with their daughter until about 6 p.m. Sunday evening when they returned home. If this was true, this alibi would exonerate Barbara. She could not have been guilty of either murder if she had been in the company of her parents during the times she was supposed to be driving up a mountain to hide Burgey's body, or at Jerry Davy's apartment feeding him poison. They both testified that while at Barbara's apartment, they had noticed nothing out of the ordinary. Barbara's mother even went on to say. There had been no late-night visits or phone calls. She was a light sleeper, she said, and would have heard a phone ring or a person arrive, since she was sleeping in the living room near the door and the phone. Mr. Hoffman testified to the same. He had heard and seen nothing either evening. But something seemed off about their testimony. Again, they shared nothing very personal about their daughter. They accounted her academic record, but didn't talk about her circle of friends, her hobbies, interests, likes, or dislikes. Nothing a parent who is intimately familiar with their child might share. Secondly, during their questioning, both seemed to be using the same words and phrases as each other, almost as if reading from a script. It seemed rehearsed and came off as disingenuous. And then the prosecution blew them out of the water during the cross-examination. They countered the Hoffman's testimony with long-distance phone records that listed several phone calls on the Easter weekend in question. On March 26, Saturday night, when the Hoffmans said they had gone to bed at 10 p.m. and heard nothing afterwards, a phone call was placed from Barbara's apartment to Maryland at 12.30 a.m. Another call was placed to Chicago at almost 1 a.m. in the morning on the 26th, and one more to Maryland was listed just after 1 a.m. This made it obvious that the Hoffmans were either mistaken or lying about the fact that they had been staying with Barbara on the Easter weekend of 1978. Also, the prosecution asked, Would parents who knew they had a rock-solid alibi for their daughter refrain from speaking up to defend her for over two and a half years? They had not come forward with their story about their supposed visits to Barbara during the times when both men, who their daughter was accused of murdering, had been found dead. It wasn't until they were called to testify that this was shared with anyone. Also, the prosecution asked, would a man who was so guilty and so distraught that he was planning to commit suicide leave a check made out for the next month's rent Ann placed slippers and towels to be ready for him when he got out of the tub, the tub where he had supposedly decided to end his life? The jury began deliberations on a Friday and spent seven hours before retiring for the night. The next day, after only 14 hours of deliberation in total, they returned a verdict. Barbara's parents were not in attendance for the verdict. They had left town and returned home the same day they concluded their testimony. On the charges of murdering Jerry Davies, the jury found Barbara Hoffman not guilty. On the charges of murdering Harry Burgey, they found her guilty. Barbara showed no reaction. She simply stared straight ahead. Sentencing was scheduled for July 2nd, but it was merely a formality. Wisconsin does not allow for capital punishment, and a conviction for first-degree murder carried an automatic sentence of life in prison with eligibility for parole in 11 years, 4 months. The court asked Barbara Hoffman if she'd like to make a statement. She spoke one sentence. I did not commit the crime of which I was accused and of which I was convicted. With that, Barbara was sent to the Teichita Correctional Institute for Women in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. Barbara Hoffman continued to be an enigma in prison. She never made any further statements and granted no interviews. She came up for parole one time in 1991 and was denied. Since then, she has not sought parole again, although eligible. Barbara Hoffman is now 64 years old and is still attractive, although her hair has now gone from dark brown to gray. Because she was not convicted of the death of Jerry Davies, the insurance policy he made her beneficiary of stayed in effect and she was slated to receive a payout of $20,000. Davies' mother, Ruth, disputed the claim. She had been beneficiary of her son's life insurance policy up until three weeks before his death. She argued that Hoffman had manipulated him and then killed him for financial gain. Ruth Davies and her lawyer threatened to file a civil suit, and since the criteria for a finding of guilt is not as stringent in civil cases, Hoffman's attorney agreed to settle the claim. Barbara Hoffman and Ruth Davies agreed to split the insurance payment with each receiving $10,000. But this story is not quite over. Not for me anyway. The question I still had in my mind was, since Barbara we know was so intelligent, so meticulous in her planning, so much so that if she did kill Jerry Davies, and most firmly believe she did, she got away with murder. She left almost no evidence of the crime, leaving behind no trace of her own involvement beyond circumstantial evidence. How could she then have blundered so badly in Harry Burgie's murder? Did she plan to kill Harry Burgey in her own apartment, on the third floor, and then have to figure out a way to dispose of the body, having to call in help, who would become a witness against her? Seems pretty sloppy and unplanned. So I did a little more digging and found an alternate theory that I think makes more sense. You judge for yourself. I think Harry Burgey was an easy source of cash, so she kept him around. She also would receive his life insurance and his property once he died. There was no immediate plans to marry him, and I think she knew she could keep him around as long as she wished. He was an older man. Maybe she could wait it out. Ironically, when the autopsy was performed on Burgie, it was discovered that he had advanced stage cancer in his right kidney. It was probable that he was unaware of this. There were no records of doctor visits or treatments, and the coroner determined he probably would not have survived more than a year if this condition was left untreated. No, I think her real plan, as she outlined to Garrett, was to kill Davies, make it look like a tragic case of food poisoning, and then collect the money. If she could do this, Birgie would be inconsequential to her. The theory, then, of what happened that Christmas weekend of 1977 goes like this. Barbara was still planning to off Davies with cyanide. I think she still believed she could get the money for the premiums, and she probably would have without the pressure of the murder investigation. She had been scamming her male clients for a while blackmailing them to take out loans for her at the university bank, or she would expose them as her johns. The amounts she was able to coerce them to sign loans for were in the range of 2000 to $6,000. I think she had started to break things off with Bergie, or perhaps not. Either way, he came by on December 22nd to see Barbara at her apartment. Barbara had in her possession crystallized cyanide. It can be mistaken for another granulated white substance, such as sugar. Harry Burgie took sugar in his coffee, and coffee was found in his stomach contents at his autopsy. It's possible that by accident, Harry Burgey spiked his own coffee with cyanide. That would explain why the dosage was much higher than what was used on Jerry Davies, 37 times the lethal amount versus one and a half to two times. As a biochemistry student with knowledge of cyanide, Barbara would have known she didn't need to use that much to kill Burgie. So it was an accident that Burgie was poisoned and died, and then Barbara had to drag him down the stairs to get rid of the body. But she had no car, so she had to ask Davies for help. She couldn't simply call the police and say there'd been an accident. First of all, how could she explain why she had cyanide in her apartment? Second, she was beneficiary of Bergie's life insurance, and surely an accidental poisoning would put her under suspicion of murder. What about the wounds to Bergie? The head wounds can be easily explained. Some believe that cyanide poisoning causes instant death, but it doesn't. It's a very violent, horrible death. Onset symptoms include headache, dizziness, fast heart rate, shortness of breath, and vomiting. This may then be followed by seizures, slow heart rate, low blood pressure, loss of consciousness, and finally cardiac arrest. The seizures can be quite violent and may have caused the injuries to Burjee's head. The postmortem injuries to his head and neck were most likely caused by being dragged down the stairs and into the snowbank. The time from ingestion of the poison to symptoms and death can be several minutes. What about the injuries to his genitals? The coroner said a hard kick to the groin, or more than one, could have resulted in these injuries. It is possible that while in the beginning stages of the poison symptoms, Harry lunged towards Barbara in the small apartment and she kicked him. Or for some reason, I think she might have become so enraged at seeing the dying man on the floor, now creating a huge problem for her and possibly destroying her plans to collect Davy's almost million-dollar policy that she kicked him or stomped on him in anger. The irony of this is that she might have been telling the truth when she said that she was not guilty of the crime, quote, for which I've been convicted. She was convicted of the first-degree murder of Harry Burgey only. If his death was a stupid accident, then she was telling the truth. When I research a case, I like to dig in and find out a little more about the criminal. The criminal. Usually, I can find information about their life, their upbringing, etc., that helps paint a picture of the individual and possibly helps us to understand why they might have committed the crime. But Barbara Hoffman remained a mystery, so at first I felt a frustration that I would not be able to share any insight about her with you. But as I read more about this case, I think I might have a little to share with you and some insights about criminals in general. I hope you'll indulge me in these opinions. The fact that Barbara Hoffman remains a mystery actually tells us a lot about her. Someone who can keep themselves that cut off from emotional entanglements, deep relationships, and real connections with others, has a much easier time using other people as pawns for their own gain. There is less of a sense, or sometimes no sense, of moral consequences as there would be for people who are emotionally connected to other human beings. The fact that her parents didn't relay many details about Barbara beyond her academic achievements is also telling. Think about how you would describe your child, or how your parents might describe you. I'd probably say things like, my son is thoughtful and kind and sometimes too sensitive, or my daughter is strong-willed and makes me laugh and is sometimes a little pig-headed, and I might talk about the things they love, like music or art. None of that was shared about Barbara. Neither did her co-workers at Jan's or at her clerical job know much about her. Something caused her to be unwilling or perhaps unable to form human bonds that determine our sense of conscience. It makes sense then that she would be unwilling to give any interviews or try and explain herself to anyone. She has no need to do so. She probably could care less what others think or feel about her, and she doesn't feel the need to defend herself or try and change others' opinions of her. And finally, I wanted to bring up something that I've observed many, many times in the course of researching crime and criminals. There's one big glaring factor that seems to play into a person's ability to cross the line into committing crimes and even murder, and that is having a sense of entitlement. Many criminals feel entitled to whatever it is they want to possess—love, money, control, revenge, or any number of other things. Because they want it, it must be so, no matter the consequence. They also often believe that they will get away with it, because they feel entitled to do so as well. I used to work with parents whose children were in trouble with the law, and one thing I would try to make clear to them, the thing that I thought would help these kids to successfully navigate the real world and stay out of trouble was that sometimes you have to let them fail. If you let them fail the little things, they will learn from them and then hopefully avoid the big mistakes in the future. Sometimes we help to enable bad behavior by bailing people out of every predicament they'd find themselves in, And then they don't learn about real-world consequences. And they learn that the rules don't apply to them. And like Barbara, sometimes these kids are very intelligent. And while some parents and others might see that as a sign of success, intelligence can be used simply to manipulate others. Barbara Hoffman was very good at manipulating her clients, especially the vulnerable and lonely ones like Jerry Davies and Harry Burgey. She was also good at manipulating her parents. After all, She got them to lie on the stand for her and provide a false alibi. They may possibly have been repeating a pattern from the past, bailing Barbara out and helping her avoid consequences. Except this time, it didn't work. This time, Barbara paid big time for her actions. Anyway, those are just my thoughts and opinions. You may have your own, and I'd love to know what you think causes people to commit criminal acts. Hit me up on the Facebook page or on the new Once Upon a Crime fan page on Facebook. There, I share additional information that I didn't get to include in each episode. Other little-known facts, pictures from the cases, and other cool stuff. Just look up Once Upon a Crime podcast fan page and join us. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're headed into 2017, and I have a new series planned for January. This time, we're going to get a little culture along with our crime. In the next series, I'll be sharing cases of crimes committed by or against artists. Or if you want to be fancy, artistes. So come and be fancy with us next month when I begin the new series, Artful Crimes. Until then, I wish you a happy and safe new year and a prosperous and peaceful 2017. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our marketing assistant is Nancy Chen, And our research assistants are Sabrina Atkinson and Sarah Villarreal. To give feedback or suggest show topics, you can find me on Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod and on Twitter and Instagram at Upon a Crime. Until next time, be good to one another.